you know, for me, it was really about trying to understand how to get into real estate. And I've been reading about real estate. I was interested in real estate. I knew that people were investing in real estate. I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So I was, you know, I was kind of sold on the idea of real estate. I just didn't know how to start. All right, guys, welcome to the Millionaire List of Podcasts. Today we have John Kasman from Kasman Capital. And John, uh, if you go ahead and start us off, how, you know, how did you begin your journey in real estate investing? Absolutely. First of all, thank you for having me on the show. Really excited to talk to you. We've had a little bit of a chance to meet back in Cincinnati uh, a couple months ago. So uh, I know you know a little bit of my story, but I'll share, I'm happy to share more for all the listeners and viewers right now. Um, but to give you a little bit of background, right now I do live in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, we have a portfolio of around 900 units or so as general partners in multifamily syndication, but that is not where I started. Uh, I started my journey really, uh, the first property we bought was a two unit building. And before I even bought that property, you know, for me, it was really about trying to understand how to get into real estate. And I've been reading about real estate. I was interested in real estate. I knew that people were investing in real estate. I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So I was, you know, I was kind of sold on the idea of real estate. I just didn't know how to start. And for me, what ended up happening is I was, you know, doing everything that they tell you to do. I went to college, graduated, got a good corporate job. I was climbing a corporate ladder over in marketing. I was, you know, in Detroit working in the automotive industry, working at General Motors right when the recession hit. And I was watching my boss's boss on CNN talking about whether or not we would have jobs. And I think at that moment, it just crystallized that no matter how big of a company, no matter what we were taught as far as how to take care of yourself, provide for your family, um, I really needed something that I could control more and have some independence over my life. And uh, I couldn't get that in corporate America. So for me, I made it a point to start trying to figure out how do I build my real estate portfolio. So that kind of forced me into, you know, uh, a long wind of, you know, education. But ultimately, I finally bought a two unit building. We lived in one unit rented out the other. And uh, from there, that worked out extremely well. I bought a three-unit building uh, two years later. That did really well. Um, in addition to that, uh, we then bought an eight-unit building. I started doing a couple flip projects, which I, I regret doing, but they were good for learning purposes. Why, why do you regret? <laughs> oh, I'll tell you in a second. Right. <laughs> but uh, And then from there, that's when we really realized, we kind of just took a step back to say, all right, what are we doing that's working? How do we actually scale this? Because the flips weren't really the right way to scale. And we knew that, you know, starting to open ourselves up to partnerships was really the best way to do that. So we ultimately did that. The next deal we did was 192 units. Um, so from Amazing. there, it was, you know, a great way to scale. Um, to go back to the flipping, the thing was, I never intended to be a flipper. Uh, it was not my passion. I did not have the skill set. So I actually ended up partnering with someone. And I thought it was going to be great because I was going to focus on my multifamily portfolio that I was building and trying to figure out how to scale that while I had this, this money invested in this flip project. And we were JV partners. They were doing all the work. They were a contractor. They were developers. So they would do all the work. I put up my money. and It was a good partnership. The issue was that partnership had some holes in it. And ultimately, that contractor just you know disappeared. I mean, flat out, just like went ghost on me. And I ended up having to finish the project myself and learn all construction and do all this stuff myself. Oh, so man, that's listen, rough. Yeah. It's rough. And it, it's one of those things too that, you know, it, it's a, you know, it, it teaches you a lot. 
Yeah. Right. You can look at this, you can lose or learn, right? It depends on your perspective. And mm -hmm. I got a very good learning experience. And it was, it was two main things that I took away. First and foremost, what to look for in a partnership or a potential partnership. And we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get into syndication, right? But what to look for in a partnership, that was really key. There were some big glaring red flags that I missed because I was so eager just to get into a flip project with someone else who could do the work that I didn't pay attention to the red flags that are right in front of my face. The other thing is understanding from a partnership standpoint, you know, focusing on the things that you really want to do. And I really didn't want to be in flips. Um, and even as I, everything I knew about flips, the deals that he was doing seemed to violate that to an extent. Um, but again, he had the experience and I didn't. So I just kind of went with it. Um, so again, I think the other lesson is, you know, when you, no matter what, experience you have you have a voice and you have a gut you have your intuition and you have to understand and listen to that um, and don't just you know silence yourself because someone else is an expert and you know one the word expert gets thrown around a lot right some people have more experience doing something than other people doesn't mean that they're going to be right 100 percent of the time you know the things that i actually pointed out on that deal that i was concerned with were ultimately the things that went wrong on that deal. Shocker, right? Even though I had zero experience flipping a home, I could read and I understood numbers. And I do have a lot of experience in project management and understanding teams and processes and all those kind of things. And as I tried to work with them on that, you know, there was a lot of pushback and resistance. So ultimately, you have to trust your gut, your intuition, and make sure you continue to educate yourself so you can understand and ask the right questions. And then it's on you to react and pivot if you don't like the responses that you're getting. Yeah, I agree. As far as, you know, you were saying you were in the, the corporate world. Um, I think quickly you realize, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you realize, you know, that what we're taught growing up as far as, you know, how our parents and grandparents build their, their wealth and their, you know, their, their family uh, legacy is different, correct? Is that yeah. something that came at you, right? It, no longer can you just do 40 years in a company and then 40 years in retirement, right? That's not a thing. That's not a realistic thing anymore. Um, is that something you agree with? Or? Yeah, listen, I mean, I think, and as we're recording this, right, a lot of people are, are concerned with the status of their jobs. You know, unemployment's at an all-time high due to COVID-19. So, and some of those jobs obviously come back, but um, the reality is, is that, these companies are not created to take care of their workers for the rest of their lives. You know, pension plans are, have all but disappeared. Um, yeah. You know, 401ks, and, and that's yeah. 401ks, you know? Um, so my father, my grandfather, they worked, you know, solid blue collar jobs with pension plans in place. They reached the age that their pension kicks in. They were solid. It's what I was told growing up. This isn't even about wealth creation, right? This is just like retirement yeah. and having money to die. Um, yeah. But that's what my father pushed me on, right? Was, hey, get a good job, work there as long as you can, put in your 20, 30 years, whatever that time is, and get you your good. gold watch. Yeah, you get a gold watch, you get whatever, you know, whatever benefits they have. And that's life, man. That's it. And I remember when I told him I was quitting. I mean, I was working at one of the biggest companies in the world. My dad's a car guy. My dad worked at you know, uh, a dealership, a car dealership, uh, pretty much most of my childhood until I was 15. So for me to go work at an, the same car company, basically, 
in corporate and headquarters running advertising campaigns and overseeing a, uh, what, a nine-figure marketing budget, you know, he was like, my son made it. And I'm like, yeah, I'm leaving. He's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so, but to your point, for me, it was, um, it was something I was taught as an intern. And I remember this guy named Corey. Corey's great dude. I shouted him out on Twitter not too long ago for the advice he gave me. And as an intern, I hadn't, I think I'd have been on maybe three flights in my life. So, you know, I come from, you know, blue collar Cleveland, you know, environment where no one in my family went to college, period. I was the first one to even go, yet alone the only one to graduate to this date, you know? So, um, you know, we didn't fly around a lot. I've been on three flights in my life up to that point. I remember I was talking to a creative director who had just come back from shooting a TV spot. And I was just, you know, me and like a few other interns were in his office and we're just picking his brain. And by the way, um, he was like one of the only African-Americans in the entire company, yet alone he's going out there shooting and directing his commercial. So, I mean, definitely looked up to him and was yeah, very, um, you know, very, you know, spongy to the information he was he was you know projecting and the one thing he said because he could see the excitement in our eyes you know we're like little children just sitting down listening to a, <laughs> a nighttime story and he's talking about the shoot and you know he's got catered dinners and all this stuff and you know he's swiping thousand dollar meals on the card and we're like man i can't wait to get to that level right and he saw the gleam in our eyes and he stopped and he said listen and he pulled out his business card and he held it in front of me and he said, don't get it confused. All of this happened for the name at the top of the business card and the title underneath my name. This was not about me. Okay. This was the creative director at this advertising agency. You know, you want to work to yeah. the point where you get these benefits because of your name, not because of a title you had hold at a corporation. And I never forgot that. So even as I rose the corporate ranks and I was an ad manager at GM and, you know, I, every, every big company, every media agency you could think of, they would, you know, want to take me out and pick my brain and try to get in front of us and do presentations. And, you know, went to Super Bowl, Times Square, concerts, maximum parties, all this kind of stuff. Right. Um, but I never forgot that they weren't doing that for John Kasman. They yeah. were doing that for the advertising manager who ran the Buick yeah. account, you know, they were doing that for the GM, you know, ad manager and whoever was in that role, we get that benefit. And for me, it was, so it was easy for me to step away from that because I never let it get to my head. And so many people genuinely believe like they are loved and it's because of them. And it's like, no dude, like the moment you don't hold that position, you don't matter. And, and, and I just felt that way that oh, as yeah. a in corporate America, you know, it's a title, you know, it's numbers. And I watched them lay off people. And that was the other thing. I mean, I watched them fired a guy who sat in front of me and the guy to the oh, left man. of me and it's like you know so I, I just never got a big head about it so for me it was like I never for me it was really important to create the financial freedom and the control of my future and destiny that I think a lot of your listeners are looking for I mean that's yeah. why you start thinking about real estate you can all work until you're 65 get your retirement and call it a day but I think many people want to have control and I think the one thing that's become clear in 2020 is it is critical to not depend on a W-2 paycheck to take care of your family. You've got to find other means to do that. And real estate was my answer. Yeah, I love it, man. That, that's super powerful. Uh, the fact that you know someone can sit you down and put that bug in your head. Because uh, then from there, it just grows, right? And then 
like you said, I think it's amazing that you didn't let it get to your head. I see that a lot with with guys with rank in the military, right? Like guys, at some point, this job is gonna end. You gotta you gotta find something else. <laughs> it's not gonna you're not gonna bury you with it, right? Like you gotta have something for your family. Uh, but I love that mentality, man. So moving on, what is um what why syndication? So what why that that spin into syndication and then raising capital? How did that go there? Yeah, so my intention was not really to get into syndication per se. I mean, to be honest with you, I didn't even know what syndication was. Um, I just Most knew of us that. Don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just knew that, you know, I was scaling my portfolio. I bought an eight unit building and everything we bought was, and I say we, I mean, my, my wife and I. So everything we bought was with our own money. You know, we saved our money from our, our W 2 jobs and we bought another property. So I, we never really expanded our means of living because we just saved that money. Once we had enough money to go buy another property, we bought another property. So that eight unit building, I remember the down payment was like, I don't know, $125,000 or something like that. And, you know, we just, we, we bought it and I sat there and I said, man, we just wrote like another six figure check for a property. And that's great that we're in a position to do that. But again, we didn't come from any money. So this is, we're literally saving every dollar to buy properties. And it wasn't generating enough cash flow where I had reached my goal and I had enough money to survive if anything happened. Um, we had equity for sure, so that was good. But I didn't have, you know, to, to go four or five years into investing and not really have anything to show for it other than, you know, a few more properties. Um, we just realized that maybe we weren't being as efficient and intelligent, especially with the amount of work we were doing. To couple that, we were talking to so many people who would watch us and see it and like, oh, that's so cool. You know, I'd love to do that. Uh, would not really do that, but get the benefits of doing that. And I'm like, yeah, well, here's how you do it. And they're like, yeah, I'm not going to go to a meetup every month and read 17 books and listen to 12 pot. Like, I'm not <laughs> doing that, right? Yeah. So, but they said, but hey, if you find something, maybe we could partner or do something like that. And I was like, all right. But I, I always brushed that off. And then I finally thought about it and said, all right, I can find deals, but I have a need for more money because my money is limited. I have people who have expressed an interest in partnering or investing with us, but they don't really want to do the work. And it just took me a minute to get comfortable with the idea of partnering with other people and being entrusted with their money to go out and buy something bigger. Um, I ended up hiring a mentor just to help with any blind spots that I felt I may have. And you know, when you're buying a property for yourself, the metrics and the numbers, you know, are a little bit different when you're buying it and you have investors and you want, you know, everyone to make money, you got to find better deals, you know, buying, buying an eight unit building that has a, you know, 8% cash flow or cash on cash return. That's not really enough money for your investors and you to, to, to make good money on that. Um, so we had to change our, our deal um, criteria, what we're looking for. We had a hard time finding deals and we ultimately met some partners and those partners, they were, they, and they were having a similar, similarly hard time finding a deal. And we just built a great relationship with them, man. And I would say over the course of the next six to seven months, uh, we would just touch base and ultimately they got a deal that they needed some help with. And we were, we were happy to help and come on board. And that's how we ended up doing that 192 unit. And from there, I mean, that was technically a syndication, right? So that's yeah. what it was, but it was not, we didn't set out to do 192 units. I was just trying to buy another eight or 12 unit and just have, you know, somebody invest alongside of me. And it ended up being that the next deal was 192 units. 
Yeah, it's crazy how things uh, fit in place once you actually start looking at it the right way. So would you say a mentor, um, for those people that are hesitant with, you know, paying for a mentor, think it was uh, 100% worth it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was. It's 100% worth it for me. Um, and I would tell people two things. And I tell this, you know, we have, we have a, a program, it's mostly marketing, it is multifamily as well. But we try to cover more of the marketing elements that, that go into investing and working with investors. Um, and I tell them all the time, the first thing you have to do is you have to understand what you hope to get out of a mentor. Because mentors are not magicians. And if you expect someone to magically craft you into this multifamily expert or to, you know, make a 150 unit deal show up, you know, in your inbox. That's not how it works. Um, so are you willing to put in the work? Yeah. Are you willing to put in the work? Do you need guidance to help you, you know, save time and for someone to say, Hey, I've done this and I've tried to do this 10 different ways. Let me tell you the way that works best. Um, do you want that kind of guidance or do you want someone to build out your website and your email campaign and, you know, call all your friends on your behalf? Like that, that's not realistic, right? So um, you can have people do work for you, but ultimately if you're building a business, you got to know the business. Yeah. You have to be the expert. You have to be the trusted advisor and you can have someone advise you on how to do that and, you know, how to build it. But ultimately you know, if you're going to reach out to people in your network or expand your network, they're going to look to you. They're not going to look to your mentor. So you have to understand what is it specifically that you're trying to get better at? What are the hurdles? What are the obstacles that you're facing? For me, the obstacle is really simple. I had built a one and a half million dollar personal portfolio, but I had never raised a dollar from anyone. And I was concerned that I, would, I might make a mistake. I might, um, I might not know what I don't know. Exactly. And for me, it was almost an insurance policy to say, look, I don't even know if I need a mentor, but I'd rather have somebody I could call if I get a deal and I'm talking to an investor and either, you know, I don't know how to respond to a question they have, or I don't know how to structure the deal, or I don't know how much I should give them. And it made more sense for me to have someone in my corner that I could talk to and also understand what they were doing and, you know, ways I could implement some of that into what I was doing and also yeah. understanding why. I was having success because I couldn't articulate it. You know, I could tell you that, hey, I know how to find good places to invest, but I couldn't quantifiably, you know, explain it to you. I couldn't put metrics on a piece of paper and say, here's my criteria. I would yeah. just tell you, oh, these are the hot neighborhoods and we invest next to the hot neighborhoods. I have no idea how to replicate and you'll, that. And you'll right? make money. Trust yeah, me. Yeah, you'll make money. Trust <laughs> me. Trust me. Yeah, like what? Yeah. No. So, so for me, it was like trying to understand like, how do I replicate the success? What's working? Why is it working? Because at some point it's not going to work. And by that point, it's too late. Yeah. You know, if you figure out, oh, you know what, well, that worked because it was, you know, a high density market, right? For instance, or, you know, it was close to public transportation, whatever the case may be, you need to know those things in advance. And that's why we focus so much on really understanding the markets and the sub markets and why I spent a lot of time launching my show target market insights to understand how to find the best places to invest because I, I mean it was really serious for me to understand like what what is it specifically where should I be looking and then how do I replicate this if I were to go to Ohio or Indianapolis or yeah. Texas or Florida because you know this I mean Chicago's a different market I was living in Chicago at the time but it's a different market and you can't assume that what works in Chicago is going to work in, you know, Oklahoma city or Cincinnati or wherever the case may be. Yeah. No, and that's, I think that's a great, 
great subject of uh, conversation because that, that's something I actually we're looking at right now is because we, we bought in Ohio, which cap rates are usually a little bit higher, but Florida, we're looking at Florida, but Florida cap rates are lower. Um, so we're trying to figure out how to tweak our, our investor returns and all that to make it where it's worthwhile because obviously you've got to take care of people and yourself. But yeah, so that, that's a great point. What do, you, what do you recommend for differences like that? I mean, you don't have to go too deep, but what, what do you suggest for something like that? Well, I think, you know, one of the things too, and, and that's a great point because one of the challenges we faced <clears throat> early on was um, many of the people we spoke to and who were in our network, they were not Midwest investors, you know? Um, and so the stuff they would do, they were doing it in Texas or they were doing it out West and, you know, Phoenix or in Florida. And I would listen to them and I'm like, yeah, but I don't think we're going to get a five cap rate in Ohio. Uh, maybe, maybe in Columbus, but I, I don't see that in a lot of these deals. So I would say there's two things I would highly recommend. First and foremost, you have to create a business plan for each property based on the dynamics of that market. You know, you can't take a business plan for a property in Cincinnati and run that same play in Chicago or Dallas, Texas. You have to understand the market dynamics or, or Phoenix or LA, right? Um, so how much of those markets are more appreciation based? How much are they cash flow based? And then I would say you want to kind of craft an investor profile or investor returns where it fits that market, you know? So for us in particular, one of the things we're doing and we're getting ready to roll this out on our, our next deal um, we're going to be focusing a little bit more on cash flow returns because we think that's where the market is. That's one of the things that that's great about the Midwest is you generally see better cash flowing assets, cash flowing properties. And we think it's a great time to be in something that's more stable, generating cash flow, less worrying about the appreciation upside and just getting into a stable asset to navigate the next few years. So that's something that we're going to focus on and, and communicate to our investors and people who are looking to get into a nice alternative investment where they don't have to worry about, you know, man, I hope this thing appreciates over the next three to five years. I hope so, too. But I'm not banking on it. And if it does, it will still make money and you'll still make money. And that's kind of the way we want to play it going forward. Gotcha. So as far as a, an active investor who is uh, trying to syndicate or even JV as well, um, are you, wh what do you think about the strategy of someone bringing you a deal and saying, hey, this, tell me if this is a good deal. Do you want to take it over and partner? Uh, is, that, is, is that a good strategy? Is that something you're open to as well? Yeah, I think it's a great strategy. I think um, the, the, there are a couple of things I would watch out for. First and foremost, who are you bringing, you know, for, for this active investor, you want to understand who you're taking a deal to. And by that, what I mean is, one, you certainly don't want to take a deal to someone who can take it from you. So where are you at in the deal, right? Are you under contract or the deal is being marketed by a broker or a wholesaler? Uh, but if you don't have it under contract, you should probably be careful of who you take it to just to protect yourself and all parties involved. Yeah, the second thing game. is, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fair game. And I would say too, like, it's just, you know, you're going to know people, right? And, and part of it is any person who's worth their weight, they're not going to steal a deal from you, right? Absolutely. That's just slimy business. And um, I, I mean, look, 
I, I couldn't imagine anyone doing it. I'm sure people do it, but anyone who is out there actively trying to build a brand or marketing themselves, who would want this out there about themselves? Like, yeah, I took this dude to deal, asked about partner, and yeah. they like stole it. Like, what? That would, who would do that, right? Horrible um, reputation. Yeah, so I can't imagine people are that short-sighted, but nonetheless, I would still protect your neck in that case. The other part of it is, you know, you've got to understand, is it really a deal or why are you bringing it to them? And what is the partnership structure? Are you looking to run the deal, but you need capital help? Do you want to literally just give it to the deal, but you want to retain a slice or, or get a fee for, for bringing the deal, kind of an acquisition fee or something like that? So I would say get clarity on what value you can bring to the deal. Because if, you know, if you're, if you're going to go out and find deals, you probably want to establish that with someone before you bring them a deal and just call them up and say, hey, listen, if I were to find deals in this market um, that fits your criteria, would you be willing to, you know, cut me in as a general partner and keep me in on the deal? That's how I would play it. I wouldn't just bring somebody a deal that I didn't already have this conversation with. Yeah, no, I hear you. No, and that's perfect advice. What, do you, what about for a, a passive investor, a partner, what would you tell them uh, if they told you, hey, I want to just do uh, active investing. I think I can make more money out of that. Do you think a limited partner can make more money off of a syndication or equal money as opposed to like flipping or, or buy and hold? What do you, what would you say to that? It's going to vary by the person. And I would definitely say you could probably make more money being active by yourself, but that's not the reason that people invest passively. Okay. The reason people invest passively, there's two. One is time commitment. Do you really want to spend all your time managing the asset? You know, if you're flipping, again, <laughs> that's a full-time job, basically. You're overseeing crews, construction, permit process, inspections, all that stuff. You know, you're, you're overseeing all of that on an on, ongoing basis and you're getting taxed at the highest tax rate. Um, so, you know, you really break it down. There's a lot of work. Yes, you get a, a solid return, but you're going to pay taxes on that at the end of the year as well. Um, so is that what you want to do? If so, great, not a problem. But most people who invest passively, they don't want the time commitment. There are other things they want to do, whether that is spending time with their family, they have passions, maybe they want to play golf, maybe they're you know making music or touring or doing art, whatever it is. I hope you don't wake up and say, man, the number one passion I have in life is being a landlord, right? Or being a project manager on a construction site. Yeah. If that's the highlight of your life, you're not living life right. You know, you should have other things that get you excited, you know, spending time with your family, your loved ones, doing the things you love, going to the places you love. Those are the things that life are really built around. So passive investors understand that and they want to spend their time doing those things and they're happy to give a little bit of that upside and profits um, for the ability to be free. It's just like any other investment. I mean, you have a stockbroker or, you know, any other place where you carry your money, there are fees and things like that that are involved where you're paying this premium to make it easier, right? So it's yeah. a similar kind of thing. Um, the other reason though is the expertise. You know, if you are flipping, that's great, but it's really hard to scale, you know, rehabs. If you're a wholesaler, that's great. Really hard to scale that into a big business. Certainly you can, it just takes work and effort. Investing passively in a larger multifamily deal, you can scale that. And obviously your own capital is limited, but if you truly want to be active, one of the best ways to build and grow 
is to invest passively in a syndication deal, a multifamily syndication deal, invest passively for a couple of deals, gain that experience, and then move over to the active side in multifamily. That's a great way to build your credibility because you've already done this deal. You've been in that passive investor's shoes. You've done it yourself. And by the way, all you have to do now is share your experience because you've done it as a passive investor. All you have to do is start talking to other people in your network about what you're doing, why you like it, where you get the benefits. And guess yeah. what? The next time you want to do a deal as a general partner or on the active side, you can go back to those same people and say, hey, you know, I was telling you I've been investing passively in these deals for the last couple of years. I'm going to do a deal myself now. And, uh, you know, if you know anybody who has some interest in investing with me, please let me know. I mean, you've already laid the groundwork for that transition. So I would say investing passively is an excellent way to scale in a multifamily. But yeah, you're not going to get all the profits, but you got to look at the big picture. You know, yeah. if you want to be a flipper for the next 50 years, by all means, keep doing that. But if you want to build a business that allows you to, you know, have the freedom to do the things you want to do, the things that you're really passionate about, then moving over to multifamily and whether that be in passively or at least starting to think about how do you build a business around it? That's a great way to approach it. I love it, man. So you mentioned time, right? Freeing up time. What systems do you have in place to free up your time? You have a VA and you, you obviously do marketing. So what do you have in place? Yeah, we do a few things, you know, and one of the big things that we try to tell people, especially like uh, some of our clients right now, is you want to figure out your marketing automations, right? So there are things that you can build if you think about a marketing funnel. And this is my background in marketing. So I did marketing for GM for all those years, as well as other advertising agencies for different clients. And you think about a marketing funnel, right? So at the top, you have kind of your leads. These are people who could potentially be your, your customers or your clients, from there, you go into prospects. These are people who are actively looking for either the products or the services that you offer. Maybe it's with you, maybe it's with competitors, but they're actually interested in, in buying something or the service that you have to offer. And then you kind of get down to, you know, uh, customers, you know, people who are going to move forward with you. And then last, you kind of get your loyalists or those people who repeat uh, with you. Yeah. So, from a marketing standpoint, you really want to figure out how do you build and add more people to each one of those funnels, right? And as you get people down, you want to convert more and more people. So if someone comes in as a lead, maybe they come to your website, you know, and they say, hey, yeah, I'm interested in investing. This guy's got a website. Cool. Well, maybe you have a newsletter or something that they can sign up for. So they sign up for your newsletter. Now they're a prospect, okay? So before they were lead, they were just out there and then they came to your website. They signed up for us. So now they're a prospect. Then you get them to the point where they actually decide to invest. Um, and then from there, you know, ultimately you, you get them down to being a loyal investor. And this is obviously for investment, but it's the same thing for anything. If we were selling widgets or, you know, Zoom yeah. or pencils, it's the same process. So from a marketing automation standpoint, you want to find ways to engage people. So I do use a VA who helps me with a lot of my content. Um, I typically come up with most of the content. She's actually good at kind of the graphics, so she'll help with some of the graphic stuff. But I usually write all the words, and then she'll help schedule posts for social media, different things like that to to push out on my behalf. Um, you know, we do have our, our podcast, which is twice a week, Tuesdays and Fridays. We release new episodes. Um, and then I host different events. So we have our monthly Chicago Multifamily Club meetings, and then I do an annual conference, the Midwest Real Estate Networking Summit. Um, so that will be held 
July 25th and 26th. We had to push it back due to COVID-19. Yeah, but uh, we're excited. Yeah, we're excited to to get that event and knock on wood. We we hope that we can pull that off and don't face any more uh, delays outside of our control. But really excited for that event. But ultimately, it's you know we try to continue to create and give value for people, and that's really the biggest thing from our time and our processes. We try to understand how do we create value for people. What are the things that are important for us to prioritize and doing that, and then how do we set up those automations that make it easy for people to get the information that they need to continue to engage with us. So those are some of the things that we really focus on. I hear you, man. That, that's all great advice. Um, so big question. Everything's going on with COVID, right? Um, how, how are you handling through this? Uh, what challenges have you seen? And two, um, I know I've watched a ton of people obviously throwing out opinion pieces, uh, but there's uh, several data-backed uh, presentations I've seen saying uh, quarter three might be you know kind of where the perfect storm happens. Uh, some people are waiting for that. Are you in that boat? What 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 do you? What's your take on all this? Uh, I think there's a lot of speculation right now, and um, yes. as real estate investors, specifically multifamily investors. Uh, many of us love real estate and multifamily because we don't have to speculate, right? It's it's supposed to be fairly simple. You know, you buy a property, you know how much income it's going to produce, you know what your expenses are going to be, you know what your cash flow is, and you have a general sense of how long you want to hold that asset. Um, so for us, we are sticking to our fundamentals. We are active right now. We are looking for deals where um, you know, planning on buying. We're, you know, very active in that sense. And I don't think wait and see is a good strategy personally. Now it depends on your business model. And if your business model requires wait and see, then that makes sense. But go back to where we started. You know, we are looking for cash flowing properties that make money day one with an opportunity for us to add value and create that value and sell whenever it makes sense for us to sell. So if that's in three years, great. If that's in five years, great. If that's in seven years, then that's what we'll do. So for us, we don't see it as drastic. We've we've kind of went through April. We're going, getting ready to go through May now. Um, and I mean, the reality is, is our for for my properties, they've all done pretty well. And in talking to our team that isn't caught up in the sizzle and the opinion pieces and just literally talking to the residents, having real conversations with them about their ability to pay rent. Um, and specifically our Ohio property, we feel pretty good about where things are at and where um, that market is headed. Um, there, there, there will more than likely be a dip. I expect a huge dip recession-wise in the stock market and the, the general market from a GDP standpoint. I don't see a way to avoid that. I don't think that that's going to necessarily result in a huge drop in multifamily values because this is a global pandemic and the globe is going to be looking for investment opportunities. So if the stock markets have crumbled everywhere, people typically will want to pull out their money and get into the safest investments they can. That's typically bonds. Um, but in some of these other countries, it may be U.S. real estate. So to get a cash flowing asset that allows you to wait this out. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are going to jump into that. You know, when you talk to people who 
invested through the last downturn. Um, many of the people who were in cash flowing multifamily properties that didn't have loans come due in the middle of their business plan, they did okay. Some didn't obviously, but they did okay. You had vacancies increase. So a couple of things that we're doing to adjust from our standpoint, while we are being active, we are looking at, you know, making sure that we project more bad debt, assuming that you're going to have more physical vacancy, you're going to have more economic vacancy. For people who don't know what that means, physical vacancy is, you know, the bodies actually live in there. You know, you might have a 20 unit building and you have 20 leases. That doesn't mean all 20 people paid you rent on time, right? So, of those 20, yes, you have 0% vacancy, but if five of them don't pay you know, rent on time, now you're looking at, you know, what is that, a 25% you know, economic vacancy. So we want to understand that component too, which again, COVID has demonstrated because you can have all these people living there, but if they lose their jobs while they're li- you know, living your property, whether you can evict them or not, they can't pay you, you don't get that money. Doesn't help you that they're living there if they can't pay you rent or if they don't pay you rent. So we try to adjust our, our bad debt up to make sure that we are you know, giving ourselves enough cushion there. We're looking to have more money in reserves and operating capital. So we do have cash on hand to manage anything that comes up or deal with any lean times. And we're not being as aggressive and we're not aggressive anyway, but we are being more conservative on our year one projections, meaning we're not really looking to do much renovation year one. We're fixing things that need to be fixed or anything that you know can spruce the exterior, the overall appeal, but we're not spending heavy on renovations right now because we want to preserve capital and it's going to be really hard to push rents year one. So if a deal still fits with all those levers that we just talked about, absolutely we'll do it because we feel like those things allow us to be very conservative and allow us to navigate through kind of this this rough cycle right now, but come out of it very strong. And I don't know if these deals and opportunities are going to be there, you know, a year from now or two years or whenever people are assuming that the market is going to be great to invest again. I'm not so sure that that's true. I think many investors right now are waiting to see what happens, especially as, you know, this stay at home is ended. Um but they're going to be figuring out what to do with their money. I think a lot of people are going to pull out a stock market. I expect the stock market to take a hit. Um, but I'm not so sure that people run away from from real estate. I mean, I, I don't think people are just going to put the money under the mattress. I think they're going to no, put it I somewhere. Agree. No, that's great advice, man. Because uh, at the end of the day, opportunity, and I think you said it best, the, the experienced investor um, is calm and knows how to navigate this and sees opportunity. Um, last question before we wrap up, um, I can tell, and I've heard you speak multiple times, uh, you're a family man, uh, real estate investing is not easy. It takes time. It takes commitment. Um, what do you say to people uh, as far as work life balance and keeping everything right between you and your significant other, right? Because it comes up and I know a lot of people don't talk about it in real estate, but it, you know, it, it becomes a, a priority. And it can get in the way of marriages. It can get way of relationships. So what do you take on that? I think the biggest thing is you have to have alignment of goals. You know, and this, this is, people can use real estate as the reason, but it's not about real estate. It's about alignment of goals. You and your spouse have to be clear on what kind of lifestyle you want to live, what kind of things you want, where you want to be, how many kids you want to have, like what does life look like? What kind of life are you trying to build together over the next 
20 years, 10 years, one year, two months, right? So when you have clarity on the vision, it's easier to build a plan. And if real estate plays a role in that plan, you can just sit and talk about that. Hey, listen, we're trying to get here. I'm trying to do this to help us get there. And that's, that's the reason I'm not, you know, as present with the family or why I need to work extra hours or be away or whatever the case may be. Now, the challenge is that many times the goals that we have conflict with each other. You know, you'll say that, um, hey, I want to be a, a great dad. I want to be a loving husband. And I want to be a, a great businessman or a great investor. Well, what happens when you need to go look at a deal and your kids need your attention and your wife wants you to do something else too, right? So now your attention is getting pulled in three different directions. So the three things that you said were important, by the way, now what do you do? So the reality is, is that you have to figure out what is the priority and for what period of time, and then also step back and say, okay, if it's real estate for right now, how do you prioritize that? How do you go hard to get the traction that you need? But then also, how do you go back to um, better balance? You know, how can you adjust and how do you make it work? One of the biggest things for us is time. So when, 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 um, I started spending most of my time focusing on real estate. My wife and I had this conversation. And the thing that became clear to me was this was a critical thing for us to get right. And I was dedicated and committed. So I started waking up earlier. It's like, you know what? Instead of doing this when, you know, during dinner time, when I'm not present for the kids, that's not fair to them. It's not fair to the family. And I'm contradicting the man that I say I want to be. I need to get up and make the sacrifice of sleeping in. I need to get up an hour, two hours before the rest of the family to put in a work. That way I could time shift my day. So that's really what, what I started to do. And I would say for anybody who's going through the same kind of situation, you have to figure out where you can give and take and say, okay, how do you be an awesome dad, but then also find time to do what you need to do? Does that mean you go hard for three hours being super dad? And then, you know, as soon as the kids go to sleep, you go hard being super entrepreneur, super real estate investor, right? Um, but you have to figure that out. You have to be honest with yourself. You have to be honest with your partner and you have to find a solution. I think the key is spend your time trying to find a solution, not so much bickering and going back and forth over the problem. The problem doesn't matter. Find the solution. So if the solution is find a partner, you know, hey, it's too much work. Let me find a partner who can underwrite some of these deals. Let me hire a VA, like you said. Let yeah. me you know, wake up two hours early to do this, or hey, maybe I'll spend Saturday mornings and give me four hours Saturday mornings to do real estate. And maybe you could take the kids and do X, Y, Z, but you got to figure out the solution. And if you're solution oriented and you stay focused on what you hope to gain by doing this, then those issues really start to fall apart. Love it, man. Uh, I'm right there with you. I'm trying to, I'm working on waking up two, three hours before. <laughs> Uh, it's not easy, but for anyone out there, you know that that's what you got to do if you want to if you want to make it. Uh, John, thank you so much. Uh, where can people find you? Yeah, so I mean, anyone who's interested in being either active or passive, we have a, a sample deal on our website. So I would implore anyone to check that out. 
You can go to chasmcapital.com slash sample deal to download that sample deal, learn a little bit more about the way we look at opportunities, both as an investor and as an operator. And outside of that, you know, we have our, our podcast, Target Market Insights, the multifamily and marketing show. You can check that out anywhere you listen to podcasts. And lastly, if you just want to connect or, you know, maybe do a quick exploration chat, uh, you can send me an email. My email is john at chasmcapital.com. Awesome, man. All right. And for you listeners, please go ahead and uh, hit that subscribe button, uh, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Uh, thank you again for joining us. Uh, John, good man. Appreciate it coming on, man. Thank you for having me, Oscar. Take care, okay? You too.